Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So uh, what's the leftover situation in everyone's house? I'm nearly through with mine. They lasted about 27 hours in our house. Wow, really? We had an immense accomplishment in the leftover department in the Wittes household. You, you you had none? No, we basically had no leftovers this wow. Thanksgiving. It was we made the right amount of food for the meal. It's the first time nobody of, does that. We've That's, never it done it before. The purpose, the purpose of Thanksgiving is leftovers. It's <laughs> not an doing accident. It wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we didn't have a turkey, which I think helps a lot. <gasps> there's no such thing as a You know what? Turkey. We didn't either, and I don't think we're ever going back. My husband what? did a porchetta instead. Oh my and god! It, it was a it was a hit, and no one really likes turkey. And uh, I think I turkeys are done. Ben, you like turkey like me? I do. And in this case, we didn't make a turkey simply because we couldn't get our hands on a kosher turkey without going through crazy uh, contortions. And so we we just. Uh, did something else. But uh, the result was that we didn't have leftovers. And I have to say it was kind of fabulous. I think you've all done it very poorly. Un-American. Can't believe I'm the most conservative one on this podcast. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the you get a pardon and you get a pardon edition. I'm Shane Harris. You don't get a turkey if you go to Ben's house, apparently, but you might get a pardon. Everybody gets a pardon. Everyone gets... What? Maybe Oprah needs a pardon. <laughs> For what? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it seems like everyone's getting pardons these days, just in case. Maybe she's the one who who, who attempted to do a pardon for <laughs> She's the mystery pardon. Oh, my God. She didn't even need it. She just wanted it for fun. There's a new <laughs> piece of legal scholarship out Uh, suggesting that the reason that the president can't self-pardon is the word grant in the Constitution, that grant means you have to give it to somebody else. And and so I think it's Oprah handing out pardons. You get one and you get one and you get one. She's out there granting pardons. That could, well, I mean, maybe. Well, maybe she should be president and she should try it. I am here in the remote jungle studio with my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, and our very special guest this week, live from Israel, folks, it's our friend uh, Noah Efron of the Promised Podcast. Hey, Noah. Hey, it's great to be here. I'm so happy. We're so happy you're here, too. Um, Folks who have listened to the podcast before have heard us talk about Noah's great podcast, and we're very psyched to have you. I think this might be our first international podcast. Is this possible? Uh, we had Sophia in from China, didn't we? Oh, that's China? true. And we have had Ben join from Israel before. Oh, that's true. Oh, I'm sorry. No, you're not <laughs> but, even the first person from Israel on the podcast. <laughs> but this is our very first Promise Podcast Rational Security Log Rolling Edition. That's right. That's right. The logs have merged. 
It's a happy <laughs> union of logs. Uh, welcome back, everybody from the holiday. Hope you all had a good one. There was some news while we were gone, uh, and we're going to get right to it. A little um, bit. <laughs> a little bit. Un poquito, as they say. On the podcast this week, a top Iranian nuclear scientist is assassinated. Everyone gets pardons this Christmas. And the attorney general takes steps to ensure that the investigation of the Russia probe continues into the Biden administration. That's his own special Christmas gift to all of us. It's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> the Russia investigation. It's the probe that keeps on probing. <laughs> it will never end. <laughs> what would we do if it ever did end oh my god we have to go back to talking about like hard national security choices no we'd learn that. new skills like macrame and woodworking <laughs> without free time <laughs> Um, let's start with Iran. The, the news this week that the man who has been described as the godfather of Iran's nuclear program was gunned down near Tehran last week uh, in an operation that bears uh, what many see as the hallmarks of an Israeli assassination, uh, or by Israeli intelligence, I should say, and the government of Iran has attributed this to Israel. There are varying reports of exactly how this went down, including some more dramatic ones involving a possibly remote-controlled machine gun mounted on a car that then self-destructed. Uh, and then some like more traditional reports, I guess, uh, of just a straight-up shooting uh, of, of the scientist. Uh, it's not clear what, if any, involvement or knowledge the U.S. had in this, but it may pose some dilemmas, to put it mildly, for the incoming Biden administration, which intends to rejoin the nuclear agreement with Iran that was, of course, forged in the Obama administration, uh, in which the U.S. pulled out of under the Trump administration. So, Noah, let's start with you. Talk to us about how this operation is being reported in the press in Israel, and talk to us about what the reaction has been. Well, the reaction has been almost entirely positive. It has been a matter in a country that is famous for being conflictual about absolutely everything. It is a matter of very near consensus. It's not entirely consensual. There are a few voices that are saying some of the same criticisms that one hears abroad. A former member of Knesset, Nomi Chazan, from the uh, left-wing Merits Party, and she was the head of the New Israel Fund, uh, wrote an article suggesting that we would gum up our relationship with the incoming Biden administration by virtue of having done this, um, and that she essentially said that the criticisms that she was hearing from Democrats in the United States are more or less right. That was very nearly a sole voice. The, uh, the present head of the Merits Party, which is as far left as Jewish parties, at least in the Knesset go, his name is Nitzan Horowitz, um, said that while he was very much in favor of the United States reigniting the JCPOA and he worried about this act, he still did not condemn the attack. And then beyond that, basically wall-to-wall -wall support. So the head of the opposition Yair Lapid, whose job it is and really just whose goal in life is to wake up each morning and do whatever he can do to topple this government and besmirch Netanyahu in any way possible. Even he posted or tweeted support saying that this was absolutely a necessary 
justified assassination. That's the exact quote. And that anyone who thought otherwise, like the Europeans, were exhibiting what he called moral bankruptcy and cravenness. And so there is not a single party in the Knesset, including the joint list, the Arab party, none of the left parties condemned it. It seemed to be something that had basically everything that Israelis love. It had daring do, it had fancy technology, it ignored the button-down propriety of the Europeans and Americans. It was a little bit of a finger in people's eyes. And it was an act, some act that seemed perhaps to be increasing Israel's security in the face of a threat from Iran that people take quite seriously. So the JCPOA was never broadly popular here. And I think that people saw this as just something that was a good thing to do. It's a little bit astonishing how utterly depoliticized it is on the Israeli scene. It's just something that pretty much everyone almost axiomatically accepts as having been something that increases our security and therefore is good. So it sounds like there's not necessarily a reaction to it as in this was urgently necessary, but was something that would have been good to do now or or, or whenever it could have been done, right? I mean, in, insofar as taking this this person out. And, it, and, and I gather it's being seen as something that will be detrimental to Iran's development of a nuclear weapon. Absolutely. And absolutely. I mean, one of the interesting things about this is that almost everything that the Netanyahu government now does is subject to the criticism that Prime Minister Netanyahu is doing it just in order to save his political skin, an accusation that is usually right about most of the things he does, and that that, that claim has not been put forth about this at all, which is, which is a little bit of an astonishment. So I think that people, people assume that it was a long time in coming, that, of course, Israel already a decade ago began to assassinate Iranian scientists, including some of the uh, some of the scientists that uh, Fakhrizadeh worked with. And I think that people see it as part of an ongoing policy and a good policy. And they assume, if anything, that uh, this was long in the works before the American election and isn't really intended particularly to scuttle any plans that the Biden administration has to grow closer to Iran. Although I do think that people assume that Netanyahu uh, believes that that's a good side effect of this, and many Israelis agree. And what do people think, Noah, or what are they saying about whether the U.S. was involved or or had some heads up about this? I mean, we don't know. We don't know the answer to that question here. But I'm curious: do people assume that we must have, or that we were involved, or do they see this as no? This is something that Israel was perfectly willing and able to do on its own. Well, Mike Pompeo visited right before this happened, pretty much. And um, there, there was a famous photo op of him sipping wine at a vineyard in the occupied territories. And he also, while he was here, met with the head of the Mossad. So one of the, uh, one of the waggish reactions that one saw a lot on Twitter just after this was announced was that I guess that Pompeo hadn't come here to drink wine at all. I don't think that anybody believes that in any way this was not entirely Israel's initiative, but I think that most people assume that it was done with the knowledge of the Trump administration and the support. So, Tammy, that kind of leads naturally to the question of what does this mean for the Biden administration? I mean, we said at the top that 
uh, President-elect Biden has said that he wants to rejoin the nuclear agreement. I think there's a there's a general assumption that you know for obvious reasons this could complicate that. But how how do you think this is going to in in specific ways prove to be an obstacle for Biden as he pursues that goal, or, or is it? Are we misreading it and actually this doesn't have to disrupt his plan? I don't think it's necessary that it is a disruption. I do think it's interesting that so much of the commentary on both sides of the American political spectrum, and indeed commentary in Israel about critics in America of this assassination, I think it's interesting that all of that is focused on whether Netanyahu and and Trump are jamming Biden or corner, you know, putting Biden in a corner or derailing Biden or what have you. I mean, you know, and that's because no matter what the plans, you know, how long planned this was, it is coming in in the context of are not quite being out of a very, very polarized electoral season. And so everything is Trump versus Biden. And there are lots of other things, let's be frank, that the Trump administration is doing to try and jam Biden on lots of policy issues and on Iran as well. But I think, you know, Noah is very wise to point to the fact that that targeting Iranian nuclear scientists has been a priority for Israeli intelligence for years and years. And uh, and this isn't even the first such assassination. And so there's no reason to think that this was done deliberately with that motive of derailing Biden in mind. I think it's more a manifestation of how politicized things are in this country, that that's immediately where everybody went and kind of dragged Israel into that argument. Oh, they're helping Trump against Biden. I do think, though, that, you know, if we cast our minds back just uh, to January when the United States engaged in a targeted assassination of a senior Iranian official, Qasem Soleimani, it was interesting that the fear that manifested in the wake of that, you know, when the Iranians retaliated against our troops in Iraq and, and over 100 U.S. soldiers were injured, uh, the fear that we might be on the brink of a new war, that was something that affected the right in the United States as much as the left. And to me, that says that Biden actually has room politically to pursue policies toward Iran that are not as confrontational as Trump's. Whether he can actually get into a negotiation with the Iranians about returning to the JCPOA or extending that deal or expanding that deal, I don't think any of that is going to happen immediately. But I do think he's got political space to explore it. I think the real question is whether the Iranians feel the need to retaliate for this assassination in some manner and whether they want to do that while Trump is still president in order to say, like, we're not retaliating against Joe Biden's presidency. We're, you know, retaliating against the Israelis and the Trump administration. Yeah. And, and that made me wonder, too. And Noah, maybe you can address this. When the Iranian government was so quick to come out and attribute this to Israel, I think the read, at least here anyway, and probably in Israel too, was, well, now they're going to have to respond to it because they wouldn't come out and attribute it to Israel and then do nothing. Is that your read on it too? There was a lot of speculation about that. I think that people are saying the Iranians are just hard to read at this particular moment. There is, I, I think that there is great faith, a little bit surprising actually, when I think about it, in the rationality of 
the, the local rationality of the Iranians in dealing with these kinds of things. So from the very start, it seemed quite possible that the Iranians would bide their time and wait for the Biden administration to come in and see whether they could advance negotiations and somehow end the sanctions that are strangling them. But then there there were other voices that said, no, they, they have to respond now. And in the end, people just I said, I guess, with the Iranians, we have to wait and see. I actually think that one of the choices the Iranians have is, you know, where they want to retaliate. And, you know, we've seen in other instances that they sort of take their time. And but here they have a very strong choice. Are they going to retaliate against you know, a Western target in the broad sense? Are they going to retaliate against an American target the way they did in January and American targets in Iraq? Or are they going to try and and find some way to target Israelis specifically and make clear, you know, try to use this as a message to the Americans, hey, we have an open door to talking to you. We're just mad at Israel. And, you know, I would say that that kind of strategy might not work, you know, because a terrorist attack against Israelis is also going to generate a political reaction in Washington. But if I were the Israeli government or Israeli intelligence, I would be really worried about that. And I would be thinking about Hezbollah. I would be thinking about, you know, some kind of border transgression. Um, And I would also be thinking about, you know, Israelis abroad who might be vulnerable to Iranian-sponsored terrorism in a third country. Uh, To add to that point, you know, one of the calibrations that the Iranians make, and it is not always a distinction that that we notice, but it is a distinction of high salience to them, is whether they respond by attacking a military target or a civilian target. They do both, but I do think a response that's directed, say, against U.S. forces in Iraq is a different thing from their point of view than a response that's directed at, for example, Israeli civilian communities in the north of Israel, or in the extreme case that the Iranians have done, Jewish targets, not even Israeli targets, but Jewish targets elsewhere. They were, of course, famously responsible for the Buenos Aires uh, Jewish Community Center attack And so, you know, all of these things just seem like attacks to us, but the different gradations is the response, as Tammy says, against Western targets or Israeli targets specifically, but also is it a military target or is it a civilian target? Right. And of course, Israeli embassies have gone on high security alert as well. Uh, Ben, just in the few minutes we have left in this segment, just address, in addition to the policy and the security issues this raises, there's a legal one as well. Is there a way to argue that this killing was legal and justifiable, or is this something else? I don't think so. You don't think think that it's legal? Justifiable is a different question, right? I think, but if it's the the question of whether it's legal is a simple one, and the evidence that it's a simple one is that the Israelis have never uh, acknowledged these uh, attacks on Iranian nuclear scientists. And one of the reasons for that is that they don't want to have to make a legal argument that that these 
are legitimate targets for for targeted killing. And so they retain a certain strategic ambiguity about whether it's them that did it. And one of the reasons for that is so that they don't have to make a legal argument here. Remember, the U.S. view of when it's a lawful targeted killing is by international standards quite expansive and and to many international organizations, you know, lawless itself. But even in the expansive U.S. view, which the Israeli view is largely congruent with, you're targeting combatant infrastructure or people, that is people who are themselves part of the command structure of a military who, uh, depending on context, pose a threat in some degree of imminence or unfolding in character. And so think about the Anwar al-Awlaki, which was highly controversial from a U.S. point of view, but the U.S. contends, and I agree, that it was a lawful strike. Their contention was that he was constantly individually planning attacks, right? Now, this involves a, a series of civilian scientists. Now, granted, they're civilian scientists who are working on ultimately non-civilian issues, but they are. there is no question that they are individually planning attacks or that they are individually engaged in hostilities directly themselves. And so I just don't know of a coherent legal argument that that would be appropriate. And certainly if somebody walked up in the streets of Tel Aviv to uh, an Israeli nuclear scientist who had worked, say, at Dimona, the nuclear plant at Dimona, where the Israeli nuclear scientists developed their bomb and shot him in the street, the Israeli government position would not be that this was, you know, a lawful military target. So I don't I don't think as a legal matter it's a close question. And that said, I am pretty sympathetic as a policy matter to the Israeli sense that, hey, they don't have a whole lot of levers to pull here short of full-fledged warfare to retard the Iranian nuclear program. So they're not going to forswear the ones that they've got, including ones that are not lawful. And they're just going to handle that by doing it and not acknowledging that they've done it. Well, speaking of not needing a legal justification, the president has pardoned Michael Flynn. Surprising no one. Was anybody really surprised that the president pardoned Michael Flynn? Surprised no. it took this long. Yeah. And that he pardoned him for like everything, including parking tickets, basically. Well, there. Right? Yeah. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> um, and we're going to get to some other. Tickets. Yeah. There's, there's been a long list of pardons. Right. Flynn's pardon. pardon is less surprising than the Thanksgiving turkey pardon. <laughs> this is more than one turkey, this pardon. Only this. a little bit, but still <laughs> less but. surprising. Uh, if we're going to get to the other pardons that are being rumored and this this fascinating mystery pardon, which we alluded to at the top of the show. But first, let's talk a little bit about Flynn. I, obviously, I think people knew this was coming. I think people assumed that it would be broad, and it is. You know, as Tammy said, it pretty much covers uh, you know not just the crime he pleaded guilty to, which to remind people was lying to the FBI following his conversations in the transition with the Russian ambassador, but also crimes that he may have committed. Um, I think it pretty much covers, as I read it, anything that the special counsel, Robert Mueller, may have investigated, potentially stuff that he did with Turkey, uh, which, 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 which we may want to talk about. Susan, let's start with you about this. 
Did it surprise you that it was this broad? And does the fact that it's this broad signal that the president suspects that Michael Flynn does have some criminal vulnerability, including, you know, oh, I don't know, plots to kidnap and assassinate or kidnap a, a, a Turkish cleric from U.S. soil or any of the shady lobbying that he may have been involved in? Yeah, I'm not remotely surprised that it's this broad because this is not like a thoughtful pardon, right? So ordinarily, whenever we think about uh, presidential pardons, they're forwarding very, very particular policy goals, messaging goals, uh, you know, forgiving very, very sort of specific crimes. Trump isn't using the pardon power like any other president has. Um, he's using it for sort of a corrupt and, and self-serving purpose. And so um, if you're going to do that, you, you throw everything in, right? You aren't um, sort of careful and narrow and technical sort of in your corruption. So I, I, I don't think that it's at all surprising that it happened or that it was sort of extraordinarily broad. Um, that said, it is a very specific form of corruption um, and one that I do think there's a little bit of a risk of, well, it's not surprising and therefore it doesn't seem like a huge deal. Um, so I'm not like losing a lot of sleep at night that Michael Flynn isn't you know, going to spend time in jail you know, I, I never thought that that was going to happen, certainly not um, uh, after sort of the Justice Department's intervention in sort of attempting to withdraw the case. You know, that said, this is clearly the fulfillment of a corrupt bargain and a corrupt bargain that uh, Mueller uh, sort of danced around in his report. Michael Flynn uh, cooperated, except for he never uh, was willing to say that Donald Trump was the person who directed him to pick up the phone and make this phone call to Sergei Kiss. Um, the thing that sets off everything else, the thing that implicates the president in all of the other really bad conduct, right? Kind of that that link that ends up being kind of a, a critical deficiency and a reason why Mueller, I think, sort of restrains himself from uh, from making sort of more explicit accusations of things like obstruction of justice. Um, and it's just not credible, one, that Michael Flynn wouldn't remember, and two, that Michael Flynn would have been acting uh, of his own volition uh, or at the, the the direction of anybody else. And so um, we know that the Mueller report describes Trump dangling uh, these pardons. And um, we've heard the voicemails from Trump's lawyers to Michael Flynn's lawyers, in which they certainly hint at the idea of pardons. And now it's fulfilled. Uh, on this critical fact, Michael Flynn kept his mouth shut. And now the president has pardoned him. And that is a use and abuse of the pardon power that I, I think is genuinely unprecedented in American history. And I spent a lot of time in the past, uh, you know, sort of two years thinking about pardons because it, it's a, it's an important part of one of the chapters that have been in my book. And there are lots of different reasons for pardons. And, and it's, it's a fascinating, really, really interesting constitutional debate, uh, policy debate. There are lots of reasons for the pardon power, sort of instrumental views that it's really, it's sort of a, a, a national security authority. Uh, George Washington uses it to pardon people who participated in the Whiskey Rebellion, this idea of sort of um, 
um, needing to quiet, you know, the, the public temper and move the country forward. There's there's obviously people who are pardoned as an expression of justice because, uh, you know, an overly rigid uh, sort of uh, criminal justice system itself uh, manifests injustice, and so the ability to sort of to, to cure these ills. Um, Barack Obama thought a lot about sort of using the pardon um, as an expression of mercy and um, people who have actually violated the law and, and been sentenced for their crimes, you know, forgiveness and, and a second chance. You know, we have seen sort of, uh, you know, corrupt uses of the pardons, right? Bill Clinton is a, is a famous example pardoning Mark Rich. Um, but this degree of self-interestedness and this degree of sort of, I, I think, almost sort of criminality on the face of it is, uh, I think, the apex of an assault against this power that uh, has Trump sort of set in motion with his earliest pardons of Joe Arpaio, right? A sense that he was using this power for self serving purposes, to reward his uh, his allies, to reward campaign donors. Uh, he dangles it as part of sort of his obstruction of justice scheme. Um, and now I, I think we are going to see this, um, uh, you know, a, a number of pardons. Uh, obviously, already they're discussing pardons for the kids, for Rudy Giuliani, for himself. Um, you know, it, it's all part of the same rotten thing. Um, and I think the really unfortunate part about it is that the historic issue with pardons in the United States is not that presidents use them too much or too freely, but they don't use them enough. They've sort of developed this process of a pardon attorney to distance themselves from the power. Um, they're really afraid to use it, even in moments in which they should, in which it's a, it's a good thing, no matter which uh, sort of policy justification you come down on. And my concern is that this overt corruption um, is going to to sort of set us back on a into a period of course correction where we've been moving towards more and more presidential pardons for good public service public interested reasons and now presidents are going to clamp back down and we're going to we're going to sort of return to a world of this very sort of stingy minimal use of the power and um, I, I think that's sort of it's a it's a good example of how um, Trump it's not just that Trump um, abuses and erodes his own office but that he leaves it in in worse shape than, than when it started. All right. So, Susan, you, you flicked at the, the, the reports that there may be preemptive pardons for, for Rudy, for the kids. I think it's safe to say that we maybe we'll table that for another time. I want to spend a little bit of time, too, in this segment talking about this very strange uh, report that surfaced yesterday, which, Ben, I'll come to you first on this. There appears to be some kind of federal investigation into a pardon in exchange for money involving the White House. Um, should be clear, it's not entirely clear from the single uh, document, which was a memorandum opinion, I think, right, from Judge Howell in the D.C. District Court that was released yesterday. It's not entirely clear that this does definitely involve the Trump White House, but I think it kind of points pretty strongly that it does. And we don't know who the players are who are involved in it. Uh, and what exactly the alleged crime was. But, but, but Ben, talk a little bit about this rather surprising development that's you know, pointing to a potential bribery for pardon scheme involving the White House and is coming into public view in this moment when you know, pardons are flying and the president seems to be prepared to basically give them out to all of his friends. Yeah. So, you know, Susan alludes to the transaction of a pardon in exchange for silence in or 
in the case of Flynn, as an obstruction of justice, but you can trade a pardon for other things too, including cash. And there's a lot of redactions. The document is mostly redaction, but it does describe clearly a Justice Department investigation of at least three people, maybe more, who are suspected of running some kind of a scheme in which they were planning to, or maybe did, seek to offer a large campaign contribution in exchange for a pardon for one of them. The circumstance becomes public because, and there's some interesting tidbits here, because some of the communications that the Justice Department obtains involving these people might, uh, or some of them claim that they are attorney-client privileged. And so the Justice Department goes to court to verify that it's allowed to look at them, which is how this, uh, this issue becomes the subject of a court opinion at all. Now, I do think there is a lot of reason to be cautious about this. And the most important is that uh, it is not clear to me that Judge Howell would have made this document public if the investigation were still ongoing. The Justice Department objected to this document becoming public, according to Judge Howell's opinion, because it named unindicted individuals, not because there was a pending investigation that the release of this material would interfere with. And so one possibility is that the investigation is no longer active and this was something that was examined and not pursued. Another possibility, of course, is that, uh, you know, there is a crime spree going on uh, involving pardons and some of them are along the lines that Susan described and some of them are uh, at least contemplated to be a more, uh, I, I don't know, why don't we just say a, a sort of cash-based economy? And it does raise the question to me, and I don't mean to be glib when I say this, but, you know, why do you need to pay the president to get a pardon? I mean, he's handing them out, it seems, you know, to people who politically been allied with him, you know, who have who have helped him out, who he thinks have done wrong. Or should we be reading this, again, if it involves you know, this White House, and if it was credible, as the president having set the tone that I am willing to give out pardons for all kinds of reasons. So come bearing gifts if that's what you want. Yeah. So just to be clear, it is not clear at all from this document that the subjects of the investigation are government officials in the White House or elsewhere. It is possible that what's happening here is somebody goes to prison and he or she and the hench people around him or her are plotting to engage in this cash for pardon scheme. But I could not find anything in the document that suggested that there was an investigation of White House personnel here. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And and look, I, I do think that the fact that this was right sort of in exchange for a campaign contribution um, raises the likelihood that the um, the person in question is somebody we've never heard of here. Trump is is clearly already thinking about handing out all kinds of self-interested pardons. Um, it's sort of anybody in his orbit. Um, and so the idea that this person felt the need to make it as explicit as saying, I'll do it, you know, I'll make this campaign contribution. Um, I, 
I think is um, potentially a hint that this is an example of uh, sort of outsiders taking advantage of a very clear culture of corruption um, and people with access to the president being, whether they're government officials or non-government officials, being willing to facilitate that because they themselves are corrupt. Um, I mean, one of the sort of the humorous things about this, and um, Ben and I were kind of, you know, parsing this document really carefully, um, you know, trying to sort of suss out hints of who it might be, is that there are so many people in Donald Trump's orbit that are criminals that like it's actually really difficult to narrow it down. Any other president, um, you would at least be able to say, well, it's one of what, one or two people? <laughs> um, Donald Trump, like there are just so many plausible candidates that like people are trying to say, well, here's the apostrophe. So it ends in an S and that gets it down to 20 names and oh, it's five letters. I mean, it's just, it is absurd just the extent of, uh, of plausible candidates here. Well, and can we also note that you know, Trump's campaign did not do well fundraising this year, and he needs to raise more money before he leaves the presidency to retire debts and to give himself a war chest for 2024 if that's what he wants to do. And so not only has he set a tone of transactionalism, corrupt transactionalism here, but he has a really strong incentive to accept all offers. Well, I don't think I need to be pardoned for anything, but, you know, I would love to know the going rate, so. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, the, the rate depends on the offense, doesn't it? It's a, it's a going on a business sale, guys, so. It's a, yeah, it's a two for prices. one pardon. <laughs> it's a clearance model, so it's a clearance sale, so you can't actually take the pardon back if you're not happy with it. You have to, you have to take it off the floor in its current condition. Oh, lordy, lordy. Well, speaking of things that will apparently never leave us, including Donald Trump, uh, the attorney general has decided that John Durham, the U.S. attorney in Connecticut who has been investigating the investigators, uh, as we've talked about on the podcast before, will get to continue his work. And he has been magically converted from a U.S. attorney into a special counsel. Or maybe he's a U.S. attorney while he's a special counsel. Maybe he He's both right now. Two, he gets to wear two hats. So John Durham got a new hat for Christmas. Um, uh, ben, this was revealed uh, yesterday, Tuesday, right, in a uh, interview that the attorney general did <clears throat> with the Associated Press in which he said, oh, by the way, we found no evidence of fraud in the election that would change the results, announcing that he had given this uh, this, this, this this new authority to John Durham, uh, that he did it actually before the election, which was notable and it's only being revealed now. And there were reasons I think that he gave for that, which seemed, I, I thought, actually pretty plausible insofar as he didn't want to be seen as interfering in the election. But essentially what this seems to mean is that John Durham doesn't close up shop at the end of the administration and that he keeps going into the future. So I guess from its face, it, 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 one question I want to have for you is to start is, does this special counsel designation seem legitimate? I mean, as I understand it, the special counsel regulations say this person has to come from outside of government. But John Durham, of course, is in government. He is a federal prosecutor, a U.S. attorney. But does Attorney General Barr have the authority to do this anyway? So that's number one. And then let's get to the question of why Barr is doing this and should the Biden administration just torpedo that order and um, send Durham on his way. But start with the actual, the, the, know, the legality of it, if, we're, if, we, if I can use that phrase. Yeah. So 
it, this is more complicated than the question legally of assassinating Israeli nuclear scientists. So, first of all, don't ever forget that Bill Barr is smart. And, you know, people forget that because people are so angry at him and hate him so much. But he's a very smart man. And this was done in an extremely clever way. And the more time I spend studying it, the more clever it seems to me. So, first of all, the formal mechanism by which he appointed Durham is exactly the same as the formal mechanism by which Rod Rosenstein appointed Bob Mueller himself. And so, what he did was he did not use the regulation, the, the special counsel regulation, to do the appointment. Uh, because the special counsel regulation wouldn't allow him to do this appointment. He instead used a general set of statutory authorities, and then he applied the rules of the regulation, which include the rule that says you can't fire him except for cause. Now, if you go back to the Mueller appointment order, the structure of the appointment is exactly the same. And so Bill Barr gets to say, I did exactly what Mueller, I gave him exactly the same appointment structure that Mueller had, which of course makes it hard for people who uh, supported the Mueller investigation and thought it would be very improper to fire Bob Mueller to object to this. So that's clever thing number one. Clever thing number two is the scope of the investigative mandate, which is huge. Um, we talk about the scope of the mandate for the, the pardon of Flynn, but basically Bill Barr wrote a mandate for John Durham here that's you, you have a jurisdiction over any illegality committed ever in uh, the FBI investigation, the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, or the Mueller investigation. So he's effectively created a special counsel, I think the first time we've ever had this, to investigate another special counsel. And then there's clever thing number three, which is it's totally unclear what Durham is investigating. So Durham was set up as a review, uh, administrative review. He then became a criminal investigation because this guy, this FBI lawyer, Kevin Kleinsmith, falsified a document. But it is not clear at all what he is investigating at this point, what what the purported illegalities that he's looking at is. And so what Bill Barr has effectively saddled the new administration with is a giant sweeping mandate, jurisdictional mandate for a prosecutor that they can't easily fire. Now, are there ways around it? Yes, there are ways around it. They are ways around it that would be very difficult politically to execute. And so I think this is an example of Bill Barr really putting one over on his successor in a fashion that's going to be difficult for the next attorney general to manage. And, uh, you know, how he, how he or she is going to do that is going to be one of the early questions that the Biden administration Justice Department is going to face. It's a dirty trick. It's really nasty. And I think it's really smart. 
Yeah, so I agree with all of that, except for I think Barr made a few big errors or potentially a few big errors that like it's a clever little scheme, but I, I think it might end up being sort of too cute by half at the end. Um, so the first is that he selected Durham uh, to play this role. Um, John Durham is a political appointee. He is currently the U.S. attorney. And the reason why, even though this particular part of the regs he didn't apply, uh, Bill Barr didn't apply, but the reason why the regs say somebody out of government is because the special counsel is supposed to be a non-political actor. It is supposed to be someone with a reputation, you know, for sort of fair-mindedness and, and integrity. It's th- These regs are not designed so that you can convert a political appointee, allow them to continue uh, politically motivated investigations that are going to endure into your successor's administration. So sort of a- as a threshold matter, I don't think there's really all that much to stop uh, the, the new attorney general from coming in. And even if they decide not to, you know, to allow the investigation to continue to say, um, John Durham is not an appropriate person to be conducting this investigation just by virtue of, of having been a political appointee at the time. I mean, that's not even a close call. Um, now, if the investigation is close to being wrapped up, you know, th- there may be some sort of, um, it may be easier to just let it, to just let it run its course. Um, but I think that's sort of, that's the first thing of, I wonder if that'll end up being um, a serious error. Um, the second one is, I, I think Ben, you know, is right. Um, there are two possibilities here. Um, one is there's some kind of live criminal investigation that just isn't clear to us at the, you know, from the outside. There's there's actually some kind of issue, in which case there is zero percent chance that a new attorney general comes in and attempts to kill an ongoing criminal inquiry. This is right, like this is um, the 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 last thing that a new AG who has this this incredibly difficult task of sort of restoring these norms at DOJ um, is going to want to saddle themselves with, um, you know, in in order to help out people who were, uh, you know, sort of attached to the prior administration, people that they could sort of easily cut loose. So I think Bill Barr um, is assuming, I, I guess, on, on one set of facts, um, is assuming everybody is um, as corrupt and unprincipled as, as he is. And, and I uh, I don't know who the new AG will be, but I, I'm pretty sure that they'll be, um, uh, have more integrity and in principle than Bill Barr does, in which case appointing Durham special counsel is obnoxious, but I, I actually don't think it's um, it's like it's significant or, or in, in terms of changing the outcome uh, at all. The other possibility is that this the Durham investigation is what it appears to be from the outside, which is uh, an investigation that was couched as an administrative review because it was really sort of a fishing trip in search of a criminal predicate. Um, they didn't have a criminal predicate. You aren't allowed to investigate things that are that don't have criminal predicates. And so by doing this admin review, they were looking, looking, looking. They found this Kleinsmith thing. Okay, they were able to charge that. That made it a criminal investigation. Now they're looking, looking, looking. And what this really is about is an effort by Barr to, uh, one, let a, let an illegitimate um, investigation continue, make it more difficult for the AG to, to shut down an investigation that should be properly shut down. Um, and two, is supposed to be an end run around which the Justice Department describes uh, non-criminal conduct, right? So uh, a byproduct of the Mueller investigation, which was ultimately a criminal investigation, was that he released this report. Um, and this report that described uh, lots of conduct by by U.S. citizens uh, who weren't actually charged with crimes. That's not something the Justice Department usually does. That's something the Justice Department is really, really hesitant to do. Um, and, and for good reason. That doesn't mean that it was improper in the Mueller report circumstances, um, but it's supposed to be unusual. And this looks a lot like Bill Barr um, attempting 
attempting to both let uh, sort of an illegitimate investigation persist um, and also find a way to force uh, the Justice Department's hand in releasing all this information that in the ordinary course of things it wouldn't release. Um, I agree with Ben, though. It does. Um, it is clever in the sense that it does really put the new attorney general uh, in a difficult position as of day one. Um, and that person, I think, is going to face a choice um, at the threshold. They're going to have to figure out, all right, is this a legit investigation or not? Um, if it is a legit investigation, then I, I think they have no choice but to but to let it continue. But if it's not an, a legitimate investigation, um, I, it's going to be a really difficult choice. Do you allow it to continue and just kind of burn itself out and roll your eyes and say, okay, fine, you know, um, I guess we won't fire John Durham and, and this report will come out and everybody will look sort of silly at the end? Or instead, does the AG really make the case to the public and say, look, we're shutting this down because it violates sort of basic principles of the Department of Justice um, and of reasons for investigations. And um, and that, that Bill Barr's uh, fundamental miscalculation is that he's assuming that, that the label of special counsel was what uh, prevented Trump and, and Barr himself from being able to get rid of Mueller, um, you know, without paying too high of a political price. But the reality is it it wasn't the label or being called a special counsel. It was the fact that there was clearly a real uh, matter to be investigated. And so that the that the public is going to see right through this, if they say, look, there's nothing here, and that they they, uh, they ultimately can uh, dismiss Durham and shut this investigation down and, and not pay a political price because the, the public understands that the, it's a legitimate thing to do. Tammy, you had a question. Yeah, I mean, everything that Susan just said to me reinforces that it's less about whether there's a predicate for the investigation that the public understands, and it's more about the character of the person who has the authority to do the investigation. Um, what you know, the reason that Trump and and everyone had trouble firing Mueller is because Mueller's Mueller. And because he's Mr. Squeaky Clean and starched white shirt and he was doing everything by the book. And so my question, Ben, I guess, is about Durham. Susan raised the possibility that Barr assumes that everybody inside the intelligence community and the FBI is as corrupt as he is. I, I guess my question is, what do we know about Durham's own inclinations and, you know, is he going to do this in a straight hour away or is he going to do a Ken Starr and turn it into a fishing expedition? So the signals on that score are mixed. I mean, Durham has a decent reputation as a federal prosecutor. He's been turned to in the past uh, for kind of high profile national security matters that needed to be reviewed from outside main justice. He's not one of the stars of the federal prosecution system, but he was not certainly not thought of as a raging partisan. That was the background. His behavior during this episode has been exceedingly peculiar from the beginning. He, you know, met with Barr repeatedly and seemed to become kind of an agent of Barr's conspiracy theories. He seemed to be for a while reviewing stuff far outside the Justice Department that was, you know, basically the intelligence community's assessment of Russian interference. And he made this, these very peculiar public statements at the time of the Inspector General's report that seemed like a comment on his own pending investigation. So I think his conduct in this matter 
has been far from exemplary, and it does raise a question about his impartiality. And yeah, I think that's like, I think you can argue it both ways, but I, I don't trust him at this point. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, Noah, you are our special guest, so I think huh. uh, you should get to go first since you're the guest. Terrific. Thank you. See, all, all this time, I've been listening since the very beginning of this podcast. I love <laughs> this podcast. You're so, so, so wonderful. But all this time, I thought you were saying abject lessons, and I have all sorts of examples <laughs> of objection. It's kind of, it's kind of the story of my life. It's kind of my brand. You but are object such lessons, a professor. I've got this. I was telling Tammy about it before. At the very beginning of March, the uh, the artist Jeff Koons shipped to Tel Aviv, maybe fifteen huge sculptures: his orange balloon dog, his balloon Venus, his incredible Hulk. You, you may have seen these when they were at the MoMA last year. And he did this for an exhibit that was planned to open on March 20th, which was exactly a week after Purim, exactly when the coronavirus really hit Israel. And Kuhn's was supposed to come to Israel for the very first time for the opening, which of course never happened. And the museum closed before the exhibit ever opened. So the exhibit was set up in March, but it remained completely unseen in the, the the big cavernous halls of the Tel Aviv Museum of Art until yesterday when the museum reopened for just a few people at a time and you got the tickets in advance on the internet for a particular time. And my Susan and I got tickets and we biked over and we nosed around the museum, which was kind of like going back to summer camp after a long year away. It was very, very wonderful just to be in the museum. And when we got to the Coons, we walked in right behind a family of four, a mom and a dad and a toddler in a stroller, and maybe a five-year-old girl. And when we walked in, we were right behind her. And she looked over and she bound over to the eight-foot-high, seemingly inflatable plastic, though in fact bronze fashioned to look like polyvinyl chloride, incredible Hulk who has a huge boulder of marble on, on his shoulder. And so I'm watching this kid watch this sculpture and her eyes went so wide and her mouth was slack. And you could see at that moment, it was all starting up again. You could see it all happening, like the mind blowingness of a world that was unfolding for the very first time to a kid. And then it made me think, and this is not some Eddie Haskell-y kind of suck up a tude. It made me think about the show that you posted last week, that deer in a headlights, Trump's just been elected show, which was so odd and unnerving. And the contrast between that show and now, and it made me think that things still kind of suck, but the world, if the world in front of this incredible Hulk, eight feet incredible Hulk, the world is unfolding again. It's like what Shelley said, that if winter comes, can spring be far behind? And I know it because I have now seen an eight foot incredible Hulk and I've seen the kids seeing it for the first time. And it just feels like the world is unfolding. And I, I got to be on rational security. So <laughs> obviously we're living in a time of miracles and wonders. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That is that is the best light at the end of the tunnel that I think I've I've, I've heard in a while. 
Uh, vaccines are pretty good too, but that's pretty awesome. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I'm going to go next because mine is sort of like sculpture adjacent, I guess. Uh, if you know me, and if you listen to this podcast, you do, then you obviously know what my object is going to be this week. I'm talking about the monolith, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Which you think came from the aliens, right? Am listen, I right? I mean, <laughs> Shane put it there. Listen, I mean, well, now, 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 if I had put it there, that now that would be, I would, I would, I would have figured out maybe a different kind of rollout than just having. Are they sheep counters or sheep herders? I think they're sheep counters. They're not even sheep herders who stumbled upon uh, this uh, metallic. It's not really a monolith. People want to say, fine, whatever you want to call it. But this sculpture in the middle of the desert in southeastern Utah. And when we say in the middle of the desert, like we're not kidding. There's actually somebody who did a little fast forward video of how you actually go get to this thing. And this isn't just like off a beaten path. It's like off many beaten paths. So placed there, obviously by aliens, to be discovered later. Uh, and it just obviously has become a subject of just global fascination and fixation. I we're, we're on a coronavirus lockdown. I may have contemplated trying to get to Utah to go find it uh, so I could phone home. Um, but do you guys have you heard the latest? The monolith is gone. Do you know this? But it appeared in Romania or something, right? Well, uh, well, a copycat appeared in Romania, not quite with the same craftsmanship. Uh, but no, it is gone. And unlike the provenance of the monolith, we know uh, the identities of the people who took it. So this was just published yesterday. A group of uh, four guys, I guess. That I, I think I would like describe them as naturalist vigilantes. Leave no trace. Yeah, went in and they were, and this was documented by another person who was there, a photographer taking some really beautiful pictures of it by the way you should check this out a guy named ross bernards who took photographs of uh the monolith in the moonlight and ross is there while these four dudes just bust in and tear down the monolith and and then they're saying leave no trace this is why you don't leave trash in the desert now their argument being that this monolith was drawing and this is true meet tens and tens of cars and i think at one point even an airplane to this as i said extremely remote and pristine part of the desert obviously so remote that this monolith has been sitting out there possibly for years and no one found it and i get the whole boy scout thing leave the place better than you found it but like really you guys are being killjoys i'm just gonna say it. we just need the monolith for a little bit longer for the actual you know engineers of it to come down pick it up and then, you know, evaporate the planet, which is clearly the plan. <laughs> and and now you've made those aliens angry. Well right. done. And now we're here and we have to wait for the freaking vaccine. Life is dull again. And no, I just, oh. I was, I was absolutely fascinated by this, but I have to say the ending was just like, damn, man. I mean, that's kind of harsh. It is. It's harsh. It's harsh. I, I wish they just would have like done it quietly and then let it be a mystery, but no, they had to put it on Facebook. Anyway, uh, Tammy, why don't you go next? Okay, so mine is also sculpture related. Ooh, I didn't realize this podcast. is totally uncoordinated people, but we have a theme going. If you can believe it, we don't plan this out. <laughs> <laughs> they can't believe it. Amazing. It's so seamless. Um, okay, so pandemic sucks, lockdown sucks, and everything is closed here, Noah. The Smithsonian. Aww. After being briefly open, just closed again. 
Um, so we are stuck with very little to do, but good friend of mine um, through Foresight back in August got tickets online to a wonderful place way out in Potomac, Maryland called Glenstone. Oh. This is the vision of a, uh, a wealthy couple who took over an old horse farm, built some small galleries for for work inside but most of it it's it's five or six acres of cultivated landscape and outdoor sculpture and so we spent several hours wandering around glenstone a couple weeks ago and and they have a coons noah a ah. huge uh it's like the head of a rocking horse on top of a hillside and it is entirely made up of living plants um, yeah, okay. it's wild, like mind blowing, even if you're not an eight year old. Um, <laughs> and it was probably the most refreshing thing I have done in months because it was all so new and so amazing. And I am so grateful for it. And so I'm, I'm going to post a picture of one massive steel structure sited in a meadow, but uh, but encourage those of you who are in the in the Beltway region in the DMV to go get your tickets. Now they are closed again, but when they reopen in the spring, get your tickets to Glenstone. Uh, Susan, why don't you go next? So mine is not sculpture related, oh. um, but it is about the evolution of the world over time. I guess I can tie it in that way. Um, very long time listeners of this podcast will remember a particularly grotesque object lesson that I had from days of yore in which we had mice in our house and a trap uh, managed to catch two mice at the same time, either in a, you know, a divine act of grace or like a terrible omen of some kind. And now we fast forward, I, I think like four or five years at this point. This is going to make us sound like we're like have like filthy and live in squalor. We're actually in a totally different house right now. And once again, there is a mouse. And my daughter claims to have seen it in her room. And uh, one of our, our rational security listeners um, deemed the prior object lesson the war on mysis. Um, <laughs> and I recorded my daughter's reaction. Um, she's, uh, she's telling her aunt about what happened. And uh, I think you can really see uh, an evolution in thinking about the applicable international law. A mouse! And what happened? It went so fast in Helen. And then what? Where did he go? He went behind there deep. Was he big? Yeah. Was he scary? <laughs> yeah. What did he look like? He was brown. Did he have a tail? Yeah. Did he look nice or mean? Mean! He's behind there. Oh no. That's what should we do with him? We could kill him. Ooh. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so there you go. Um, her memo on uh, the unable or unwilling ability to capture the mouse and the necessity of killing him is forthcoming. Um, I think you're raising gosh. a future head of the Office of Legal Counsel. <laughs> the, the war on Mises takes uh, a, a sharp right turn. 
Um, the look on her face, by the way, is priceless because she is just so deeply satisfied with her conclusion. <laughs> and she's like, come on, join me. <laughs> oh, man. All right, it's Ben. It's the bloodlust, really. Yeah, exactly. Uh, ben, round us out. So on In Lieu of Fun the other day, Kate Klonick and I had the great uh, documentary filmmaker Alex Gibney. And uh, this provoked in me a sudden desire to watch lots of documentary films. And so in the spirit of Shane Harris giving film recommendations, I am going to, over the next few weeks as object lessons, give give documentary film recommendations. And the first one, uh, which I watched, it's a three-part documentary, which I watched the other day, is called Don't Fuck With Cats. And (laughs) it is a really cool little movie about some internet nerds who get upset with this guy because he smothers two cats and makes a video of it and posts it on Facebook. And so they start trying to figure out who killed these two kittens and they end up finding a vicious killer who is called the butcher of Montreal and is a really famous case uh, in Canada. Uh, And it was partially broken by a bunch of internet nerds upset about smothered kittens. It is a pretty cool little movie. It's available on Netflix and it's called don't fuck with cats, which is a very satisfying name of a movie to say. I remember that case and I don't think I could bring myself to watch the movie, but that's fascinating. I didn't know that there were documentary investigators on the case. Uh, It is a good example of when the Montreal police department, they had been trying before the murder, these randos from around the world had been trying to alert the Montreal police department that they had somebody who was going to escalate and they were going to, something real bad was going to happen and they were ignored and ignored and ignored. And then he kills somebody and mails his feet to the oh. Canadian parliament. I mean, it was a real psycho thing. Wow. And these guys were like, that's our boy. Um, and so it's, it's a pretty cool story. I think these filmmakers need to come figure out Susan's mouse situation. <laughs> or at least the film subjects. <laughs> who is now serving life in prison in Canada. Oh dear, oh dear. Well, he's probably just better off tucked away over there. He doesn't he doesn't sound very nice. Oh, but that is the end of the podcast that no cats were harmed in the making of this podcast. And that's <laughs> not that you know of. Oh, you bring them to me if they were, my friend, because we're going to have They got words. pardoned. There's no pardoning for harm to cats. Not absolutely not. Uh, Rational Security, of course, is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can get your own Rational Security monolith at the Lawfare store, right, Ben? Oh, we totally need to produce monoliths. I mean, at least at least many ones, right? Like tiny ones. I mean, the big one looked a little little difficult to make. Uh, Shipping costs would be high. Shipping costs would be very high, but exactly. If anybody out there wants to make a monolith, you know, let us know. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Whenever you download the podcast, please leave a rating and review. Remember, you can also find us 
on Facebook. Uh, audio engineer this week was the great Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. Our show is produced and edited, as always, by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week, actually, uh, by Rudy Giuliani. You know, he used to do a drag routine. Do you remember this? Like, remember the commercial he was in, in drag? Yeah, no, he did. He did that. Yeah. He, so he's revived it, but he's being sued because he chose the name Dolly Parton. and you know seriously and on the theme don't fuck with dolly parton i don't like the pun but she will marry the craftsmanship (laughs) i lovingly worked that one over (laughs) oh i'm sure sophia yan is very happy about that too because i'm sure she's a huge dolly parton fan and if you're not you're not american or human on behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittis, Tamara Kaufman Wittis, Susan Hennessy, and our friend Noah Efron. Noah, thank you so much for joining us. This oh, was thank super you for cool. having me. This was great fun. I'm Shane Harris. Uh, we will see you guys next week. Enjoy your leftovers. Bye-bye.